Section 9 of The Age of Elizabeth by Mandel Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Book 2, Chapter 2, Mary, Queen of Scots. Mary was left a widow at the age of 18, but she had gained a political experience far beyond her years. Her French education had almost done away all traces of her Scottish birth. She had received to the full the lessons of graceful refinement, for which the French court, since the times of Francis I, had become famous, and amongst its beautiful and brilliant ladies she gained a reputation as one of the most beautiful and most accomplished. In religion and politics she was a Catholic, attached to the schemes of her uncles, the Guises. In the atmosphere of intrigue in which she had moved, she had learned the arts of dissimulation. She knew how to throw over her deep-laid plans a veil of charming artlessness. She knew how to use for her own purposes her great natural gifts, and to employ her personal charms as a means of working out her political plans. Never has there been a sovereign whose public and private life have been so entirely mixed together. Political plans seem to have had no attraction for her unless they had a dash of personal feeling and personal adventure. The enjoyments of private life gave her no pleasure unless she were working through them upon unconscious agents toward the furtherance of her great ends. At first her character was unknown in England, and it was of the greatest importance to Elizabeth to know how far she might look on Mary as a friend. Her ministers in Paris urged upon Mary the signature of the Treaty of Edinburgh, acknowledging Elizabeth as Queen of England. Mary refused to sign this, and her address in giving excuses for her refusal first convinced Elizabeth of the power of the enemy with whom she had to do. Till the treaty was signed, Elizabeth refused Mary a passage through England on her return to Scotland. Mary showed her bravery by sailing from Calais to Leith, though the channel was full of English cruisers. She landed safely in Scotland in the middle of August 1561. The Scots received her with enthusiasm, for their chivalrous feelings were awakened by the sight of their young queen as she stood before them in her beauty and grace. To Mary, accustomed to the splendid pageantry of the French court, the attempts of the Scots to welcome her seemed rough and rude. She had left behind all the graces of the French court, and had come amongst a rugged and proud people to whom subserviency was unknown and who were heedless of decorum. The common people thronged about her with easy familiarity as she went to Edinburgh. The nobles were rude and boisterous, and cared little how they showed their respect. The queen had no royal army to meet her, no bodyguard, no band of courtiers. Nothing shows more forcibly the great strength of mind and firmness of resolution which Mary possessed than does the way in which she comprehended her position and resolutely adapted herself to it. Though surrounded with difficulties, a young queen come to govern without any real power, a people almost strangers to her, alone amongst men with whom she had no sympathies, a Catholic amongst a Protestant people, 
still she bravely set her face to do the work on which she had determined. Full of ambition, she had many chances before her. If the Catholics prevailed in France, she might rely on help from that country. If there were any movement of Catholics in England, it must be in her name. If anything were to befall Elizabeth, she was the next heir to the English throne. The future was full of possibilities. Meanwhile, she must win the goodwill of the Scots. Perhaps she might even succeed in winning them back to Catholicism. Anyhow, she must have Scotland at her control as a safe starting point for her further plans. Elizabeth could not penetrate Mary's designs. She could only suspect them, and Mary's refusal to ratify the Treaty of Edinburgh confirmed her in her suspicions. She felt herself checked on every side by Mary, whose position in Scotland was undisputed, whose claims to England were maintained by many, and whose right of succession was admitted by almost all. Elizabeth must most probably have wished for a peaceable alliance with Mary, whose right to the succession would then have been recognized. But she could not admit the right of succession until the claim to present possession was laid aside. Mary, on her part, would not give up an existing claim to gain a doubtful benefit in the future. Meanwhile, Elizabeth could neither admit nor reject Mary's right of succession without injuring herself. She could not marry without putting herself at a disadvantage as compared with Mary. If she married a Protestant, the Catholics, being deprived of the hope of a Catholic successor, would be drawn closer to Mary. If she married a Catholic, it would be distasteful to the Protestants, and she would, by such a marriage, sacrifice much of the independence not only of her personal but of her political position. There is no doubt that she wished to marry Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester, the younger son of John Dudley, Duke of Northumberland, who had played so great a part in the events of Edward VI's reign. But she felt that she could not marry a subject without lowering her position in Europe. It would, in fact, be preferring her own gratification to the nation's good. As she could not marry to her liking, she used her marriage projects as a means for diplomatic shuffling. So, for a few years, history seems almost to be concerned with the personal contests of these two queens, for they summed up in their own persons the opposite tendencies of the time. They were opposed in eager rivalry, each ready to take advantage of the other's mistakes. Both of them were highly gifted women. Both were ambitious and with great plans for the future. Mary was more graceful, more winning, with greater subtlety and quickness. Elizabeth was more imperious, more cautious, with greater foresight and prudence. Both of them were utterly unscrupulous and deceitful, ready to use any instrument in their way, and careless of everything but the success of their plans. But their plans had this difference. Elizabeth was identified in her interests with the nation over which she ruled, and though she might at times be capricious, yet in the end, her sense of duty toward her people prevailed over her purely personal desires. She lied and plotted and quibbled, but it was to gain at the least possible cost to her people some object which was for her people's good. Mary, on the other hand, had no sympathy with the Scottish character. 
her ends were purely selfish and her plans were simply laid for the increase of her own greatness hence it was that she failed in the crisis of her fortunes her sensual nature was too strong for her political cunning the desire for gratification at the moment overcame the desire for future success she lived for herself alone and sacrificed her future to her present at first mary's governance was one of wise moderation under the guidance of her half-brother lord james stuart who was created earl of murray the queen succeeded in gaining toleration for her own catholic worship and the moderate party gradually increased one great reason of this was that the new clergy were discontented at not receiving the lands of the old church one-third of these lands went to the crown for the payment of the new clergy but the other two-thirds were left in the hands of the laymen who had managed during the disturbances to get possession of them mary was not content with mere moderation when the plans of the earl of huntley who still headed the catholics in the north of scotland were suspected by the government mary accompanied the earl of murray on an expedition against him in fifteen sixty two she rode gaily on horseback and enjoyed to the full the excitement of a martial undertaking huntley was killed the power of his clan that of the gordons was broken and catholicism was driven out of the north Mary felt that her time was not yet come, and meanwhile she would not risk her future success by maintaining her principles in an untimely way. The reason for this dissimulation was, no doubt, the unfavorable turn which affairs had taken in France. The Protestants had used the dissensions between the Queen Mother and the Guises as a means of bettering their own position. At a meeting of the estates held at Saint-Germain on January 5th, 1562 it was agreed that a legal position should be granted to the protestants their preaching was allowed within certain limits and all penalties against them were suspended but though this might be a politic measure it awoke most bitter feelings in the minds of the fanatical catholics at whose head stood francis duke of guise toleration was impossible when men's passions were so violent two hostile bodies could not live peaceably in the same land. The hatred against the Protestants blazed forth in the massacre by Guise's followers of a Huguenot congregation at Vassy, who had assembled under the protection of the recent edict. The massacre was not deliberate, but the angry soldiers rushed upon the defenseless crowd, and Guise approved of the deed, March 1st, 1562. When Guise arrived in Paris, he was received with enthusiasm by the people of the city. His friends gathered round him, and he was soon more popular than the king himself. The Catholic feeling was stronger in France than Catherine had supposed. She was a politician, and cared nothing about religion in itself. She had tried moderation, but the Catholic party showed itself more zealous. For the present, she lent it the king's name. The object of the Catholic Confederates was to revoke gradually the Edict of Toleration, beginning first with the chief towns. They succeeded in winning over to their side Antony, King of Navarre, by promises of the restoration of his kingdom, which since 1512 had been in the hands of Spain. But the other head of the Huguenot party, Antony's brother, Louis, Prince of Condé, remained true to his principles. 
though a man of easy, careless character, whose life was by no means marked by Huguenot severity, he still believed Protestantism in the bottom of his heart. He did not hesitate to accept the challenge offered. Declaring that the Queen Mother and the young king were kept in captivity by the Guises, he took up arms for their liberation. Condé was not strong enough, however, to wage war by himself. He applied to Elizabeth for help, which she cautiously and sparingly gave, after having demanded as a condition the surrender of Havre de Grasse into her hands. As before, she had defeated the plans of the Guises by an alliance with the rebel nobles of Scotland, so now she would do her utmost to prevent the Guises from helping Mary by forming an alliance with the rebellious Huguenot of France. The war centered in Normandy and at first was unfavorable to the Huguenots. On December 19, 1562, Condé was defeated and taken prisoner at Dreux, and the Duke of Guise undertook the siege of Orléans, the most important town which the Huguenots held. But fanaticism was not solely on the Catholic side. A young Huguenot, Poltrot de Mary, had convinced himself that he would be doing a deed acceptable to God if he could rid the earth of the persecutor of his brethren. He contrived to assassinate the Duke of Guise before Orléans, February 24, 1563. Already had the religious war in France awakened feelings of the bitterest kind and swept away the ordinary principles which regulate the dealings between man and man. The violence and animosity which have always marked French party quarrels found in these religious contests their most awful expression. Now that Condé was in prison and Guise was dead, the Queen Mother again came forward to urge moderation. She patched up a reconciliation and the Edict of Amboise, March 19, 1563, gave the Protestants the right to worship in all towns where they worshipped at present except Paris, which was too bigotedly Catholic to tolerate their presence. A truce was agreed to between the two contending parties, though it clearly could not be of long duration. But at first the national spirit prevailed. Catherine was able to unite both factions for the recovery of Havre, which was easily won back from the English, and Elizabeth was compelled to make peace. For the next few years, however, the party of the Guises gradually grew stronger in France, owing partly to the spread of the Order of the Jesuits, and in part to the influence of Philip II of Spain, who dreaded the influence of the French Protestants upon the Netherlands. He was urgent that the Queen Mother should join with him in taking common measures for the suppression of heresy. Catherine, who dreaded Spanish interference in France, refused to move from her policy of moderation. In proportion as the Guise influence advanced in France, so did Mary in Scotland begin to act more decidedly. Her marriage was a great means by which the Guises might increase their position in Europe, and many negotiations were entered into on the subject. First Don Carlos, son of Philip II, was proposed to marry, but apparently his father was already afraid of the ungovernable temper of the youth, and the match was strongly opposed by Catherine de' Medici, who intrigued to prevent it. If Mary had married Don Carlos, the Reformation would have been at once put down in Scotland, which would have again become the quarter from which a Catholic onslaught 
might be made on England. When this project fell through, Elizabeth urged Mary's marriage with her own favourite, Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester, and offered, if this marriage were contracted, to recognise Mary as her successor in England. But Mary knew that by her marriage with a Protestant and an English subject, she would have made herself forever harmless to Elizabeth, and would have destroyed the political influence of her position. Mary saw no chance of securing her recognition in England, either by agreement with Elizabeth or by help from Spain. She must take her own measures and trust to her own skill. She felt that she had made herself personally popular in Scotland by her winning manners, and she knew that the fanatical intolerance of Knox and his followers had created a Catholic reaction amongst all the more moderate men. Mary thought that she could now afford to show her real colors, and therefore, on July 29, 1565, she married her cousin, Henry Stuart, Lord Darnley. This marriage was a blow to the Protestant party, as Darnley was a Catholic. Murray and his followers regarded it as a menace and at once took up arms, but they were not joined by recruits as they had expected. They were powerless against the levies which the king and queen brought against them, and were driven to take refuge in England. Elizabeth also felt herself threatened by this marriage of Mary, for Darnley's mother was a granddaughter of Henry VII of England, and by taking him as a husband, Mary had strengthened her own claim to the English succession. Mary's position was now most formidable to Elizabeth. The Catholic lords were recalled in Scotland, and everywhere throughout Europe Catholicism began to raise its head. It was generally believed that an understanding had been come to between France and Spain for the suppression of Protestantism. So alarmed was Elizabeth at the general aspect of affairs that she received Murray in the presence of the French and Spanish ambassadors, scolded him for rebelling against his lawful sovereign, and extorted from him a statement which deceived no one that she had had no share in his rebellion. Mary was now triumphant. If only the fear of the political influence of Protestantism could overcome the national jealousy of France and Spain, Mary hoped that a great Catholic expedition would soon be made against England in her name. But Mary's triumph was destined to be brief. Her marriage with Darnley was an unhappy one. He was vain, dissolute, presumptuous, and foolish, and could neither help his wife by his counsels nor recognize her superiority and obey. His vices outraged her feelings, and his conduct was restrained by no care for decorum. Their quarrel was notorious to all, and those who were discontented with Mary began to gather round Darnley. Parliament was to meet in March 1566, and Murray and the banished lords must then either appear and make good their cause, or be outlawed and lose their estates. Darnley then agreed to make common cause with the chiefs of the Protestant party. He entered into a bond to do his best to have Murray and the rest recalled. But he too was to have his own wrongs redressed. He entered into another bond to have certain privy persons cut off, wicked and ungodly, not regarding Her Majesty's honor, but seeking their own commodity, especially a stranger Italian called Davy. 
Darnley was seized with jealousy of the Queen's confidential secretary, David Rizzo, who was her instrument for her secret intrigues with foreign powers, and through his late increase of importance had given himself airs which deeply offended the proud Scottish nobles. Darnley thought that if Rizzo's influence were gone, he himself would be supreme. So, on the evening of March 9, 1566, as Mary was seated in her chamber at Holyrood with a few attendants, engaged in talk with Rizzo and Lady Argyle, Darnley entered and spoke familiarly with the Queen. He was soon followed by Lord Ruthven in full armour with pale and haggard face, since he had dragged himself from a bed of sickness to do this deed of blood. It would please your majesty, he grimly said, to let yonder man Davy come forth of your presence, for he hath been overlong there. His meaning was at once clear. Rizzo in terror seized the queen's gown. More armed men rushed in. Rizzo was rudely detached, and Mary was thrust into her husband's arms. The wretched Italian was dragged to the chamber door, stabbed, and his body thrown down the stairs. When the attendants of the palace hurried to the spot, they were dismissed by Darnley, who owned the deed as his. On the next day, Murray and the banished lords returned. Mary had heard Rizzo's fate, and saw at once the meaning of the plot laid against her. But her strong and subtle nature rose with the danger. She listened to Darnley's excuses and professed to forgive him. She received the banished lords and pretended to be reconciled to them. But meanwhile, she knew that the Earl of Huntley and James Hepburn, Earl of Bothwell, both devoted to her cause, had made their escape and were raising troops. By a bold stroke of policy, she won over Darnley by her blandishments, managed to dissociate him from his confederates, and prevailed on the feeble plotter to disavow his share in Rizzo's murder. Then, having thus secured Darnley, she fled with him secretly on the night of March 12th to Dunbar, where Bothwell joined her with the forces which he had raised. On March 28th, Mary returned to Edinburgh, and the rebel lords again fled before her. Again she was restored to power, and the birth of a son, afterwards James I of England on June 19th, added still more to the strength of her position. It held out the prospect of an assured line of succession if Mary's claim to England were recognized. When Elizabeth heard of it, she burst into tears at the contrast between her own solitary condition and her rival's growth in power. The Queen of Scots, she exclaimed, is the mother of a fair son, and I am a barren stock. But meanwhile the conduct of Darnley had made him contemptible to everyone. Mary did not disguise her hatred for him, when once he had served her purpose of depriving the rebel lords of any lawful head. His confederates, whom he had weakly deserted, could no longer trust him. He had no claims on the Protestants, and to the Catholics, Mary was the natural head. He wandered about the court, despised by all, pouring out his complaints to anyone who would listen to him. Once he talked of fleeing to France, but was prevented, as that would have caused a scandal. There was talk of a divorce between him and the Queen, but this too would have raised unpleasant questions. Mary, on her part, gave all her confidence to Bothwell, who had come to her aid at Dunbar. She gave him the rich abbey lands of Melrose and Haddington, and conferred on him the offices of Lord High Admiral and Warden of the Scottish Borders. 
By these means he had become the most powerful man in the kingdom, and having won so much, hoped to win still more. Mary was greatly under his influence. After the trials and excitement she had gone through, she seems to have lost some of her force and power of self-reliance. She threw herself upon Bothwell, and her feelings toward him became more and more passionate. Bothwell formed a scheme for marrying the queen, though she already had a husband and he a wife. Darnley was first got rid of, but in a way so clumsy that it could scarcely hope to escape detection. He had been attacked by smallpox, and was removed to Glasgow to be tended by his father Lennox. When he was somewhat recovered, the Queen paid him a visit, and arranged that he should come back, not to Holyrood, but to a place close to the city wall called Kirkafield. On the evening of February ninth, 1567, the house was blown up by gunpowder while Mary was at a ball at Holyrood, and Darnley was found dead in the garden. Mary was now a widow, but it was at once suspected by everyone that Bothwell had been the author of Darnley's death. Mary affected to believe that it was a plot against herself, which she had fortunately escaped. But the voice of rumor could not be stilled. Placards were found affixed to the door of the tollbooth, accusing Bothwell of the murder. Darnley's father, Lennox, wrote to the Queen, demanding a trial, which was at length granted. But Bothwell overawed the capital with his troops. The trial was looked upon as a prosecution instituted by Lennox, not by the Crown. Lennox was afraid to venture to Edinburgh, as the Queen forbade him to bring more than his household servants to attend him, and he was afraid of his life. Bothwell was acquitted because no prosecutor appeared, and no evidence against him was tendered. Bothwell's plans now advanced more rapidly. He succeeded in getting a number of the chief lords of Scotland to sign a bond that they would promote his marriage with the Queen. Then, on April 31st, as the Queen was returning from Stirling, whither she had gone to visit her child, Bothwell intercepted her and carried her off to his castle of Dunbar. There was still the difficulty in the way of Mary's marriage to Bothwell that Bothwell's wife, sister of the Earl of Huntley, was still alive. A divorce was therefore necessary, and as Bothwell was a Protestant, while Mary was a Catholic, it was determined to make assurance doubly sure. In the Protestant court of commissaries, Bothwell's wife sued for and obtained a divorce from her husband on the ground of adultery. The consistorial court of the old religion was re-established by royal warrant, and divorce was pronounced on the ground of consanguinity according to the laws of the Roman Church. When the divorces had thus been settled, Bothwell, who meanwhile had been created Duke of Orkney and Shetland, married Mary on May 15, 1567. By her marriage with Bothwell, whose guilt in regard to Darnley's murder was almost universally acknowledged, Mary had ruined her reputation, not only in Scotland, but in Europe generally. Elizabeth had watched her rival sink deeper and deeper, till she had ceased for the time to be dangerous. Mary's infatuation for Bothwell had destroyed her political wisdom, and she had given reins to her own passions and had paid no heed to her great plans. By her marriage with a Protestant, she had ceased to be the head of the Catholic party. By her marriage with a man of Bothwell's character, she had roused a deep feeling of disgust throughout Scotland. The rapid rise and overweening power of Bothwell filled the Scottish lords with alarm. 
Never before had they known what strength the crown might gain when allied to a powerful feudal house, and now they saw their independence threatened by this union of Mary and Bothwell. Many of those who had signed the bond to aid Bothwell began to plot against him, and when Mary summoned the feudal levies for an expedition to the borders, she met with no answer to her call. Alarmed, she and Bothwell retired to Borthwick Castle, whither they were soon followed by a force under Lords Morton and Home, who declared that they had come to free Mary from the power of Bothwell. As Borthwick Castle could not be held against them, Bothwell first made his escape. Afterwards Mary joined him, and both took refuge in Dunbar. The lords advanced to Edinburgh, where the castle was at once surrendered to them. They issued a proclamation charging Bothwell with having murdered the king and entrapped Mary into an unhonest marriage. Bothwell raised his forces, and the lords marched out of Edinburgh to meet him. The armies met at Musselburgh, but Bothwell saw that his ranks were thinned by desertions. He declined a battle, and Mary surrendered herself at Carberry on condition that Bothwell was allowed to escape. June 15, 1567. Bothwell fled to Dunbar and afterwards to his duchy of Orkney. Thence he went to Denmark, where he died in 1577. Mary was brought back to Edinburgh amid the execrations of the crowd. Banners representing the king's murder were waved before her eyes, and the figure of the young prince was represented calling for vengeance on his father's murderers. Mary had by her conduct forfeited forever her great position in Europe. It was hopeless for her, covered with shame and disgrace as she now was, to expect help from France. She had lost all the sympathies of her people and could never again make herself strong in Scotland. The lords had hoped to detach her from Bothwell and govern in her name, but when she still clung to her worthless husband she was removed from Edinburgh and confined in Lochleven Castle. Three days after this, June 20th, a casket belonging, it is said, to Bothwell fell into the hands of the Confederate lords. This casket contained letters purporting to be addressed by Mary to Bothwell, which he had kept as a means of securing his influence over her. The letters themselves were full of the most passionate love for Bothwell, and were concerned with schemes for ridding themselves of Darnley. If these letters were genuine, they would establish the depths of Mary's guilt and infamy. But the balance of evidence at present seems to tend to the conclusion that they were forgeries. There were motives enough why such letters should have been forged by those who wanted some convincing proofs of the suspicions which they, perhaps justly, entertained. At all events, they were accepted as genuine, and were acted upon by the lords at the time. The queen was treated as guilty of murder, and was made to sign an abdication of the crown in favor of her son, and a nomination of her half-brother Murray as regent, July 24, 1567. Henceforth, Mary was no longer Queen of Scotland. How deep her own guilt may have been is a matter of controversy, for since her death, Mary has been a symbol for religious and political ideas, as much almost as she was during her lifetime. But even if we acquit her entirely of the blackest crimes of which she has been accused, she must still be held to have sacrificed, strangely, the great interests committed to her charge. Mary had wrought her own ruin, and Elizabeth had witnessed with an intense feeling of relief the hurried steps in her rival's downward course. 
England was saved from the danger of a Catholic restoration in Scotland and a great Catholic combination to establish Mary on the English throne. How pressingly near this danger was at the time of Mary's fall, we shall see if we consider the position of the Spanish power at the time. End of section 9